on my own. Uh, there we go. It's time for our kids' corner, and I'm mobile again this week, so I can come out to the sunny spot out here. They can't see me? Uh, all right, I guess you'll have to come in here because the camera is not mobile this time. So, sorry guys, if I come out there, nobody can see me. can hear me, but they can't see me. So while you're on your way in here, I have a question for you this week. And as always, they're kind of stompers, but how would the world know that you are a Christian? Because they see you pray, maybe. What do you think? Is it a special appearance? How about a special smell? Well, maybe you need a shower. I don't know about that. <laughs> Be nice. Yeah, I'm being nice, okay. Been left unsupervised up here, you know, right? <laughs> so, um, did you catch in our reading earlier today, there's a sure way the world will know that we're Christian. Jesus tells us that the world knows we're Christians by how we love other people. All right? How do we love other people? <laughs> What is love even? That's a hard one to define, isn't it? You know, you kind of know it when you feel it, right? And maybe it's kind of snuggly and you love some people. But I could also say, like, I love spaghetti, right? <laughs> but now I don't think that's what Lord, like, I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. I'm not supposed to eat other people, right? I, that, that's like way out of the question, right? And if we're supposed to love all these people, I got another question for you. Have you ever met people that are hard to love? I mean, like, don't need to name names here, but there are some annoying people, and you know, annoying people they even annoy me sometimes. They annoy me a lot of times, honestly. But, you know, is it possible to love them? Yeah, they're the, especially the ones that need it even, right? And, and by the way, you might think that there are some people, you know, like a little baby or a little kid, oh, they're cute, they're easy to love, right? Yeah, they are, except have you ever done this? Have you ever taken the baby's bottle away from it? If you do this, the baby will give you a look and scream. The baby does not think, oh, she's bigger than me, she knows what's best, right? She looks at you and turns bright red, and if that little thing could get up and wring your neck, it probably would. Am I lying about this, parents? And guess what, guys? All your life, that never really goes away in you. You know, we just get kind of better at hiding it, right? I mean, we don't turn bright red and scream at people when we're in school anymore, but, you know, we still have the same sort of feeling, like, why are you doing this to me? Right? So, anyway, my point is that, you know, everybody's got issues here. How are we supposed to even love in this world, right? And this is what I want to talk to the big people about today. This is going to be a good sermon, so try and get something out of this, because it's going to be funny, too, I think. All right, why don't I, why don't I have at it with the bigger people? So... Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be, uh, be
be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So, obviously, if you haven't caught on, we're preaching from 1 Corinthians today, right? And 1 Corinthians 13 is probably the most gloriously written chapter in the Bible. It's something that almost everybody knows from heart, and it's the most touching verses, right? What comes to mind? Okay, adults, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Weddings, right? It's always the wedding. And everybody uses this, or a lot of people use this at their wedding. You know, I mean, if I could speak in the tongues of men or the tongues of angels, but I have not love, I am a resounding gong, right? So, and in fact, actually, Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. It was at Cana, right? He turned the water into wine. And, and there was a comment made after he did this, and I think this is really how we ought to love. And if you caught this, it goes kind of like this. Someone at the wedding said that at most weddings, the host brings out his best first, right? And he saves the cheaper stuff, the lesser, lower quality after, for after people have already had a few drinks. My question, guys, you know, and this is a confession to some extent, how many of us have done this when we were trying to woo our wife, we brought out the best, you know, and then we tied the knot and, well, you know, well, we got on with life and the best sort of, right? And uh, so I'm reminded of a story on this from, and then I probably end up in the doghouse if I tell this story, but anyway, the bringing out the best sometimes in my life was just getting my wife to laugh uncontrollably, right? And I had this idea one night, I, I discovered that if I put a flashlight in my underwear strap and turn it on, it puts a halo on the ceiling over my head, right? So I came out of the bathroom and met Lisa with my halo up there. So I've been praying really hard and I really feel holy. And she, was that not the best fear? You know, all right, so... But, you know, after we're married, we sort of just get into this funk. And, and what I'm trying to say and encourage here is be like that new wine. I think that's also part of love. And it's a bit of a detour here. Anyway, love can really change our behavior, at least for a little while. But that's not what Paul was getting at when he wrote this verse, when he wrote this chapter. Not at all. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't about romantic love. It's testimony there to the Holy Spirit's power to make something meaningful in us, I think. In reality, 1 Corinthians 13 was written as a scathing rebuke to the church at, Ch at Corinth. Did you know this? So you might ask then, what were they doing? So, if you had been at Corinth when this letter was written, it's very likely that you wouldn't have felt joy. You'd have been embarrassed, probably. You probably would have, I envision 1 Corinthians actually hearing this and struggling to make eye contact with one another while this was being read to them, right? Right? 
here's the story. Here's the backstory. You see, the church in Corinth had become kind of Paul's problem child. Um, Corinth was the center of wealth and talent and kind of Greek pleasure culture. Okay? Sort of think of New York City when we think of Corinth. There's fantastic wealth and talent there, fantastic potential, but boy, is there dysfunction, right? That's Corinth. And it amazes me that the gospel actually took root and flourished there, but what was happening that required this rebuke? See, the church was fracturing because of the self-centered behavior and ideas of its members. So I got to describe how church used to be in the old days. So the, the congregants at Corinth got together and they went and sang praises and they prayed together and they heard a reading and then they had what was called a love feast. We would call this more or less potluck with communion tied to it, right? Okay, so here's the problem. The people at Corinth believed that well, some of them were more believed that they were more important than others. So, for example, my spiritual gifts are better than yours. I can speak a foreign language. You know, it's kind of interesting when Paul is talking about speaking in tongues of men and angels here, the word he uses is dialectos. It's not, you know, the glossolalia, the speaking in tongues like we think. He's talking about literally speaking a foreign language. So it is real talent that he's talking about. But anyway, people rank themselves according to their spiritual gifting or how much they did for the church. And they thought that the more they did, the, the more gifted they were, the closer to the front, the closer to the crock pot they should sit at that love feast. And the issue was that the people that sat closest to it got first, got more, ate, and some people didn't get any. Some people were getting drunk on communion wine, right? So we need a lesson in church behavior. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 really is. So, <clears throat> maybe we need such a message, though, even today. Obviously, we don't have these issues in our church. That's true enough. But does the world know that we're Christians by our love today? Actually, you know, if you go out into the world, what is the big accusation against us? What are Christians? Other oh, hypocrites. They're narrow-minded. They're judgmental, right? How come the world is not seeing us as love? Now, picking up with Paul, if I could speak in the languages of men and angels, if I had the gift of prophecy, and if I could fathom all mysteries, and I had all knowledge, and I had faith that could move mountains, no matter what my spiritual gift, if I don't love my brother, my gift is useless. Even to prophesy, that is to speak the heart of God, it is nothing. It's like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, right? And no offense to gong players and cymbal players here, but I'm really not interested in going to hear a gong so well, right? Yeah. 
Spiritual gifts are intended to operate for the good of the church, to serve the body, not to be used for personal, self-centered, sinful gain or pride. Imagine using your spiritual gifts to portray yourself as sort of a super-Christian to the other people sitting around you. Is that obnoxious or what? Right? Paul continues, if I give all I have to the poor, and even if I die as a martyr, if I don't have love, it's all worthless. Paul's message is, neither spiritual gifts nor works is a sign of spiritual maturity. Love is. In fact, love is even a great, an even greater measure of spiritual maturity than going to the scaffold as a martyr. How many of us and I know I've played this mind game, you know, with myself. How many of us believe that even if we faced death as a martyr, we would stick to our convictions? You know, and I mean, I, I believe I would. I, I think I would. I hope I would. But yet, don't I also have trouble loving my brother? Which of these things should I focus on in reality? I think if I focus on loving my brother, the rest will flow. Paul goes on to describe the sort of love he's talking about by calling out the behavior of the church at Corinth. Your behavior isn't love. It is not patient. It is not kind. It envies. It boasts. It's rude. Love isn't those things. You know, and by the way, Try this sometime. Wherever Paul is saying love is, insert the name Jesus in there and see what you get. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not rude. Do this because, after all, this is what it's all about. Trading our spirit for the Holy Spirit and becoming Christ-like. This is spiritual maturity. And in fact, it works the other direction, too. If you want to understand the character of God, the character of Jesus, see it through that same lens. John 3.16, one of the other most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Can you even imagine this level of love? Can you imagine allowing your child to die so that someone else might live? That's a big, big one. You know, imagine how terrible hell must be to make that worthwhile. And appreciate the grace that you've been so freely given I actually have a story about this. In 2009, there was a father that took his son and the boy's friend out on a boat trip out from L.A. to Catalina Island, and they got caught up in a storm out there. The boat actually capsized. The father was able to cling to the boat, but the two boys got separated in the water. And father had a split second to decide which child am I going to throw the lifeline to? And he said in the end, he said that 
He knew his son was saved, but he knew his son's friend was not. You can hardly tell this story. So he yelled to his son, David, I love you, and threw the lifeline to the other boy. So the other boy was raked in. His son had slipped the leg away. Now, the question is, in that brief instant, what was the father, what gain did he think he might get? What was this going to do for him? Well, not a thing. Nothing. Nothing. If anything, rescuing his own son would probably have been less of a burden. Can you even imagine this kind of love? The story is riveting because the choice is so unimaginable. And, you know, not only is godly love so profoundly deep for us, it initiates. It doesn't wait. God didn't wait and do nothing. At the right time, God initiated his plan of love. Love doesn't wait. It sees a need and it fills it, even at personal sacrifice. Yes, the Corinthians notwithstanding on this one, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. But that still doesn't earn you a second cup at the communion table, right? <laughs> so uh, God is patient. He's not willing that any should perish. Jesus does not envy. He carried the cross. The gospel is the story of our security in God's love. It undoes the need to get its own way, the need for jealousy, the need for pride. And it removes fear that we won't get what so that we don't need to worry about getting what we want. And this opens the door for living for others. And this grace then turns our mistakes from shame into purpose. The part of our problem with 1 Corinthians 13 actually lies in our own language here. In English, the word love conveys lots of different meanings. I love spaghetti. It can be very abstract, you know, I love attention, you know, or something along that line. In Greek, there are four primary words that we translate from the Bible as, as love. And they are eros, which is erotic love, or storge, which is the love between members of a family, or philia, which is love between friends. And then the word that Paul uses throughout 1 Corinthians 13, agape. Now, so in Greek, in every case, a person needs to be the subject of this love. So it would be impossible to say in Greek that I storge spaghetti or I agape spaghetti or certainly not I eros spaghetti. That would be a little bit cringy. <laughs> but anyway, agape, what is this? Well, it is the self-giving love. It's love without expectation of gain. It's so great it can be given to the unlovable and the unappealing and even those that are ungrateful. It's love that stands up to rejection. It's unchanging love. 
or unfailing love, depending on how you translate the word. Think of it like this. It's kind of like the love the school teacher has for their students. This, the teacher sees the body of students and, and does their job because of their love of the student. It's always wanting good for the other person. Actually, agape comes from the Greek word meaning to absorb or be absorbed by. So it's all absorbing love, our soul's only focus. Interestingly, we get a rather opposite English concept from the same Greek root word, and that word is agony, right? So hear me out on this. As agony is all absorbing pain, it becomes our, so absorbing it becomes our only focus. Agape should also be so absorbing that it becomes our only passion. Right? Paul wraps up his commentary describing the imperfection of our understanding. How can we understand what God will do? We understand only like a child right now. We only see part of what's happening. But one day we're going to see fully. And he concludes that these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. What Paul is really saying here, our great faith, the faith that we will be raised from death, that will one day come to pass. And our great hope that we will see Jesus face to face and live eternity in the presence of God will become sight. Faith and hope come to completion. Love never does. So let us live in this world in such a way that the world notices Listen, maybe the rest of the world will say, well, that star guy, I don't really agree with a lot of the things he said. That's fine. But I want him, I want him to say, but man, he sure does care. He loves people. I wonder where he draws on that love. That would be victory in Jesus. Amen.